Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. On the last program, we made a case for the authenticity and historical reliability of the Book of Acts. Luke, as it turns out, was a very careful historian, and as we discovered, evidence for his credibility can be found on just about every page. Well, on this program, I'll be talking with Dr. Dennis Johnson about the content of the earliest Christian sermons that we find in Acts. What do these sermons tell us about the beliefs of the first generation of Jesus' followers? And how do their messages compare with the things we're likely to hear in Christian circles today? Dr. Johnson is Professor Emeritus of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California, and is the author of numerous books, including Let's Study Acts, The Message of Acts in the History of Redemption, and Journeys with Jesus. Because Dr. Johnson has written a couple of volumes related to the book of Acts, I decided to ask him what it was about this particular book of the Bible that captured his interest. Well, one thing that attracts me to Acts is that it is uh, the one book of the New Testament in which one of the gospel writers, namely Luke, has carried the story of Christ inaugurating the kingdom forward. As Luke says uh, at the beginning of Acts, he says, I wrote a former book about what Jesus began to say and do, and the implication is now I'm going to tell you what Jesus continues to say and do as the risen, ascended, exalted Christ as he pours out his spirit on the church. So it's about Jesus' agenda after his suffering and exaltation. What would you say characterizes the messages that Luke records for us, and how do you think those messages differ from the sermons that one is likely to hear today in an average Christian pulpit? Well, I would say the main focus of all of those sermons is uh, on the events of the redemptive ministry of Jesus Christ and obviously how those events were foretold and predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. So focus, especially focus on the resurrection of Christ, 
The resurrection, of course, was the point of controversy uh, among their first audiences. The apostles witnessed that they that Jesus had actually been raised from the dead, had appeared to many witnesses, and that these were now his eyewitnesses to the people. Woven in is the theme of Christ's atoning suffering as well. Not as explicit and as elaborate as we find in Paul's letters, but it's there, especially in the theme of Christ as the suffering servant. So there is the heart of the sacrificial substitutionary suffering of Christ already in these early sermons that we hear from, especially from Peter in the early uh, chapters. Yeah, it's the great exchange. And uh, as you mentioned, there are allusions to uh, that great passage from Isaiah 53, which, of course, focuses on that suffering servant who bears our iniquity and also makes us to be declared righteous in his presence. Yeah, exactly. So there's the point that here we have this suffering servant enduring uh, the judgment that other people deserve, that we deserve. When I look through the book of Acts, I'm reminded of Jesus' line in John chapter 5 that, you know, where he tells the Pharisees, you seek the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life, but these are the passages that speak concerning me. And what people often hear from Christian pulpits is you can have a better life and you are the major subject of the sermon from start to finish. Now, that's not to say that there isn't an appropriate point to consider how do I live in light of these realities? But it seems that we've lost the foundation of Christ being the major subject of all the scriptures and that we continually need to be rooted in him. Do you agree with that? Well, I don't worship in the average church most Sundays. <laughs> You're probably right. And But definitely what we see in Acts is Christ is the subject. And I like the way you put it, the foundation that reality of what God has done for us in Christ is the foundation then in the book of Acts for a call to repentance and faith and unpacking what it means to live the Christian life, to live by faith, is what we would look to the epistles for more. But the foundation has to be solid, and that's what God has done for us in Christ. That's what gives us reason to begin to walk worthy of the calling with which we've received, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, when he makes that hinge from the first three chapters, which is gospel, to the second three chapters, which is, here's how you respond to this good news of God's amazing grace. The foundation has to be solid, or we're not going to have any reason, and we certainly are not going to have any hope that there's power to change us. But the foundation's got to be solid, and that's Christ and his work. As you know, the first third of the book of Acts focuses primarily on the Apostle Peter. And one of the striking things about Peter that we observe in all these settings is how confident and bold he seems to be in all of his speeches, which is really quite different from the wavering personality that we encounter in the Gospels. What do you think accounts for that difference? Well, obviously, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a key factor yeah, right there in there next too. But actually, even before the Spirit's poured out on Pentecost, we begin to see a turn in Acts 1, because it seems as if in Acts 1, when Peter explains why a replacement for Judas must be appointed by Jesus through the church, um, he's learned to read the Old Testament the way Jesus had been teaching his disciples to read the Old Testament. Which is what he did over that period of 40 days exactly. there, what right. you find in Luke's gospel. I mean, he'd done that before his death, too, but especially that 40 days was a concentrated course in Christ-centered Bible interpretation. Peter's getting it now. And then, obviously, with the outpouring of the Spirit, giving boldness, which is one of the points that Luke emphasizes throughout Acts. Yeah, the Lord has done something amazing in Peter. 
What's some of the language we find on the lips of Jesus there on the road to Emmaus? Well, he says to the two, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then he opens up the scriptures to them and shows them from Moses and the prophets, that necessity. And that's the language that is appears in both Luke and Acts and on the on the lips of Peter in Acts 1. It was necessary for Judas to betray Jesus. Hmm. It's the language that says we know it was necessary. That is, we know God purposed it, planned it, willed it, mm-hmm. because we can read it in the scriptures of the Old Testament. He's already announced that, so we know that's necessary. Yeah, that that's the point. So in the first few verses of Acts chapter 2, we're told that when the day of Pentecost had arrived, the apostles and the other followers of Jesus were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, of course, as you know, there are a lot of different views about the nature of tongues, but what seems to be clear from this passage is that they were speaking intelligible words. Right. And whatever your view about you know what tongues are, if you take a close look at Acts 2.4, it says that the believers began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In other words, the gift here that Luke seems to be emphasizing there in verse 4 is that word utterance, which according to my own research is a, actually a rare word that refers to the bold speech of an oracle giver or a prophet This is the gift that Peter appeals to in his citation of the Joel 2 prophecy, which spoke of the day when, quote, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. So in other words, in my view, what's really being emphasized here is that the Holy Spirit has now empowered the disciples to speak prophetically after the long silence of the intertestamental period, which, if you think about it, is why Christians believe that the book of Acts is inspired and belongs in the canon, along with all the other New Testament texts. What do you think about that read of the situation? I think that's exactly right. And I think it's confirmed by the fact that when Peter introduces the quote from Joel, he calls Joel a prophet. And then the quote itself uses the verb form of that, your sons and daughters will prophesy. So he's clearly appealing to inspired word of God through Joel. And now he's saying that all these believers, we assume around 120, because that's what Luke said in the first chapter, are all speaking inspired prophetic words from God. So, yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And that they're intelligible, it seems to me, is absolutely clear from chapter 2, verse 8, where the listeners are saying, how is it that we are hearing each of us in his own, the Greek is dialectos, which is a dialect. Yeah, our it's, own it's dialect. It's a known yeah. language. We yeah. are understand. they're saying it, and we are hearing it in our own languages. So whatever the, your view of the language issue, whatever tongues are, even if it is a language miracle, which I'm willing to concede— I don't think we should expect anything like that based on the history of what we see here any more than we should expect tongues of fire over people's heads. The important thing is that when you look at what happens here, Peter, filled with a spirit, is proclaiming Christ from all the scriptures. Exactly. Exactly right. It's the focus on that. And in fact, the fact that we shouldn't expect repetition of all the phenomena, as you say, the tongues of fire... Uh, the sound of the rushing wind, uh, another yeah. point that, you know, this is a unique event. This is the time when Jesus fulfills the promise that God spoke through John the baptizer, that Christ would pour out his spirit on his church. And so we find later on in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 12, makes it very clear. Not all are prophets. All have received the spirit who belong to Jesus, but not all are prophets. It's very much similar to the outpouring of the Spirit in Numbers 11 on the elders to equip them to assist Moses as judges. On that event, they prophesied, 
to show that the Spirit had come upon them all, but Moses includes, they did not do so again. It did not make them perpetual prophets. It made them perpetual judges with the wisdom of the Spirit. But that was a unique event in the Old Testament, similar to Pentecost in the New. Yeah, and then Paul will also say that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. But in terms of the way that the church is sustained, you know, you don't go and rebuild the foundation, but the church is sustained by the appointing of deacons and elders. There's nothing about what would qualify a person as he's setting up new churches— what qualifies a person to be a prophet? It's just deacons and elders. Yeah, we sometimes call them uh, ordinary officers. Yeah, the ordinary They have an extraordinary officers. privilege, but they're, they're the builders on the uniquely apostolic foundation that Jesus laid in the first century. And that apostolic foundation has now been inscripturated, right? Because exactly. we have the proclamation of the Spirit-inspired words in these sermons and in the epistles. Exactly. Right, right, right. All right, so now in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 32, after interacting with Joel chapter 2, Peter then goes on to emphasize the importance of Christ's death and resurrection. As he does that, what text does he end up interacting with? Well, he, uh, let me say one more thing before that. It's striking when you get to the sermon, Peter quotes the Joel prophecy about the outpouring of the Spirit to make all God's people prophets. And then it seems as if he drops that subject altogether, which was the, yeah. the subject that brought the crowd to them. He seems like, uh, I want to talk about what you really need to hear, which is about Jesus and his, his death and resurrection. And of course, the focus here is on the resurrection. Yeah, And so he goes to Psalm 16. The Lord has not allowed his Holy One to see corruption. Peter says, I have to be frank with you, brothers. David wrote this psalm, but this is not about David's experience. We still have his tomb to stay. It's about David's greater son. It's about Jesus. Uh, So he goes to Psalm 16. He goes to 2 Samuel 7, the promise of a son from David. He goes to Psalm 110 that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and it's from there that he's poured out the Holy Spirit. So finally, he brings back in the evidence of the Spirit's coming on that day that had drawn the crowd. But he says, to understand what the Spirit's arrival means, you have to understand God's plan and purpose for his Messiah, because the Spirit has come to bear witness to the Messiah. Jesus promised that in John 16, that the spirit of truth would come to glorify him, Jesus, not to bring attention primarily to the spirit's self, as it were. Do you think you could consider this the foundational sermon for Christianity? Oh, absolutely. It just seems that the themes and the texts that he's interacting with, these are foundational texts that should be at the heart of the way we instruct new believers to get a grip on what Christianity is. That's the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says to the Corinthians, I handed on to you what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, Yeah, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and then Paul goes on to list many more eyewitnesses ending up finally with Paul himself. He says this is of primary importance. It's the first thing you need to learn. It's the thing that will help you to grow. And it's about Christ's death and resurrection and about both of those two events having been foretold in the ancient scriptures. There's nothing in there in that summary about uh, extraordinary gifts or healing ministries or (laughs) it's just Christ's death, burial, and resurrection according to the scriptures. Right. Exactly. 
Do you agree with uh, some of the scholars who say that this is a creed that goes back to the mid 30s or so? I think it's quite possible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the fact that it's in such a parallel structure, it sounds mm-hmm. like it could well be something that uh, the Corinthian believers should have been able to know. Oh, well, of course. You know, so I don't think Paul was kind of freely composing it as he wrote First Corinthians. I think he was right. embedding this, like some other texts that we have in the New Testament, to remind them of what they already knew. What I think is fascinating is just when you do the the comparison of what Paul says there in First Corinthians 15 with what Peter is actually doing here, Peter's talking about the death and the resurrection of Christ according to the scriptures, and that this was seen by eyewitnesses, himself included. Exactly, exactly. And again, if we compare Acts with Luke's volume one, and we look to Luke 24, this is not only to the two on the road to Emmaus, but to the larger group. Jesus is unpacking what the scriptures have said. So it's not surprising that Peter has this kind of clarity. Of course, he and the other apostles had been the witnesses who saw that Jesus died. He was really dead. He was buried and saw that he was really alive as the resurrection appearances show that they were able to touch his wounds, that they watched him eat fish, that it was a real resurrection. That claim of eyewitness testimony comes up a lot in the sermons that we find throughout the book of Acts. Why do you think the apostles stressed that point so much? Well, because the heart of their message has to do with events that took place in real flesh and blood history. It's not just sort of theory. It's not just uh, sentimental thoughts. It's the events. God sent his son into the world. God's son was attested by the miracles that these men had seen. The whole faith of everyone whom they called the faith depends on the reality that Jesus died and that he was raised. And then we know the significance of that in the creed that we've been talking about. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was raised, so he conquered death. Or as Peter says here, the resurrection is so crucial because death had no right to hold Jesus. I I love love that. that, You know, The resurrection is God's declaration that the death that Jesus died was not for his own sins. If he had died for his own sins, if he had died as a sinner in any way, shape, or form, death would have every right to keep its hold on him. But because he died for our sins, death could not hold him. Yeah, because he's the Holy One who could not see corruption. He's the Holy One, exactly. Yeah. He could not see corruption. So, of course, Luke starts his gospel this very way when he's writing to Theophilus, the beginning of the gospel. I want to tell you what the eyewitnesses have handed on to us about the things right. fulfilled. Uh, I know, Theophilus, you need to have certainty about what you've been taught consistently. You need to know, and you need to know it's all based on eyewitness testimony. And, of course, that's the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15 as well to the Corinthians. Yeah, seen not just by Peter and the and the Twelve, but also by the 500 brothers, who, right. many of whom are still alive. Right. It seems that there's a, a definite emphasis on the objective rather than what we like to focus on, many Christians even today like to focus on the subjective. They talk about their personal testimony, what Jesus has done to me or what I've experienced. But you don't see that kind of language in the book of Acts, do you, where the the apostles are talking about their testimony? No, exactly. Their testimony is about what God has done in history in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's about not only God's work, but God's work in those objective events. And that's where our faith must rest and reside. 
Do you think that that's anchored in some of the instructions you find, say, in the book of Deuteronomy, where something must be established in a court of law by two or three witnesses? And even when it comes to, you know, how do you recognize a future prophet, the prophet is the one who speaks the things that actually come to pass. So in other words, you actually compare that which the prophet says with its fulfillment in history. Yes, that's absolutely true. Someone who presumes to speak in the name of the Lord, that claim, which is a high claim, has to be confirmed by God working, giving signs to testify that that is true. A true prophet will have those kinds of signs. And of course, that's exactly what Peter says about Jesus himself, right? Verse 22, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did. Yeah. And for the apostles at a lesser level, they also were given miracles to confirm that they were really directly speaking the very word of God. So Paul talks about the signs of the apostles being done through him, 2 Corinthians 12. I wonder if this is not something that could speak to some of the debates in apologetics. Think about someone like Isaiah. Why was Isaiah's writing included into the canon along with the writings of Moses? Well, he spoke about the things that the Assyrians would do correctly. Mm -hmm. Then he spoke Mm -hmm. about what the Babylonians would come and do correctly. He names Cyrus by name. And then you look at an amazing prophecy like Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant. Yes, Clearly, this is a divine text because what he predicted came to pass. So it's not just Isaiah said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's you compare what Isaiah said to history and there it's confirmed. Do you think it might help some of the debates within apologetics? It's not just believing the text, but believing the text because the text has been confirmed in history. Yeah, I, I do think it helps. And, you know, I think that a person's presuppositions are bound to influence how they respond to evidence. I do too. So we can't simply throw more evidence at people and say, this is bound to persuade you and bring you into the kingdom. The Holy Spirit has to be at work. But on the other hand, we don't say in apologetics or witness, just take a leap, you know, take a leap of faith. You know, there is evidence. There is much evidence. And if your presuppositions won't let you hear it, it's time for you to re-examine your presuppositions. Yeah. If, if they can't really deal with it, if you have to only suppress it, then your presuppositions uh, are weak, and, and you may not say it out loud, but you can say it in your heart, and I'm praying that the Lord will give you eyes, because he yeah, gave me right. eyes I wouldn't have had before. Apologetics is an aspect of Christian witness, and ultimately it's dependent on the power of the Spirit to actually drive home the word of Christ to people's hearts. Do you think we should have more apologetic aspects to our sermons? Like here, what you find is Peter preaching a sermon that is both pointing to Christ in all the scriptures and the meaning and the rich theology, but also the apologetic importance that God is testifying to you concerning this because it's been confirmed in our midst. We are witnesses of this fact. Yes. Yeah. We get, you know, he's using the two witnesses. We've got the, the witness that uh, you all already acknowledge, and that's the ancient scriptures that are bearing witness to Christ. And then our eyewitness testimony together converge to make the case, to persuade you, to call you. And then then the Holy Spirit uses this and stabs people's hearts, the kind of the language that's used toward the end, pierced to the heart. Right. And people are saying, how should we respond? You know, what should we do? We see that we need the redemption that Christ has come to bring. What should we do? 
One more question on the apologetic side of things, and that is uh, when Peter uses this language of, as you yourselves know, and that we are witnesses that God foreordained to testify to these things. Do you think that our job, one of our jobs as modern advocates for the truth of these things is that we help people to see that this testimony is reliable, that this is real history? Oh, yes. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. And you actually see a little bit of that going on in, as you see, those sermons of Acts unfolding. So, for example, we're not going to go as far as Acts 13 and Paul's sermon in Antioch today, but he refers to those who traveled with Jesus, who were his witnesses to the people. And then Paul and Barnabas are now testifying to the synagogue people in Antioch at a distance. The folks in Antioch didn't witness everything, but Paul says there are witnesses in Jerusalem, and we're bringing the word to you too. So, yeah, we may need to help our hearers or people we're interacting with see and understand things that Peter's original hearers would have already known. All right, so moving on, you know, to verses uh, 37, 38 of Acts chapter 2, Luke records that now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So here's where the sermon gets practical. You know, this Christ-centered sermon points the hearers in a new direction, you know, repentance. It changes their identity. This is Mm -hmm. a new identity that they need to be baptized into. And it proclaims a new reality, the complete forgiveness of sins. Yes, yes, exactly. So it's really about a complete life transformation yeah. uh, that is initiated by God through his word, but it does involve a response yeah. from the people. This isn't just fire insurance. No, no. This is the Holy One who has been testified as Lord and Christ, who is the good shepherd who not only saves you from your sins, but also calls you to follow him. <laughs> yes, yes. And along with forgiveness of sins, uh, in the net very next phrase, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke would describe the fact that if anybody comes to faith, that's God's work. Yeah. But in Luke Acts, usually he talks about it in a little different ways than receiving the Holy Spirit. He talks about the Lord opening somebody's heart. Right. Or granting repentance. So that's still the, the Spirit's initiative. But here, Luke is recording Peter's words that along with forgiveness comes this transformation of your whole life. Yeah. It changes them. And, you know, we carry this on to the next few verses where Luke summarizes the life of the early church. The fruit of the Spirit's work in those who come to faith that day and are baptized into their new identity in Jesus in that day is that they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to sharing their resources, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then he unpacks some of that, especially the sharing part. There's a new community that's created by the Spirit. The focus is when the Spirit comes to everybody now, he's producing Christ-likeness, sanctification, we would say, right? That's his agenda in the life of those who've come to faith, whose sins are forgiven, and now whom the Spirit is gradually conforming more and more to the image of Christ. All right, so now after healing the lame man in the early part of Acts 3, Peter preaches another sermon in a part of the temple known as Solomon's Portico. What are some of the uh, characteristics of that message? Well, again, like on the day of Pentecost, he is going to call his hearers to account for their opposition to Christ. 
but more the focus is on God fulfilling again his ancient promises. Uh, now Peter begins to talk about Jesus as the servant of the Lord and begins to talk about him in terms of the some of the language of Isaiah 52:53 that you mentioned a few minutes ago. He emphasizes that in quotes it actually pretty much verbatim at some length, Moses promised that there would be a prophet like himself that God would raise up among the people. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Yeah, he's uh, the ultimate prophet. He's the ultimate prophet, right? And then he goes toward the end, he quotes the promise to Abraham. Peter's making the point, all of these great events of Christ's work have been prophesied through the Old Testament. And because of that, we can know that it's through Jesus' name that this lame man has been healed, that he's been strengthened, that he's able not just to walk, but even to leap. And Luke's narrative is probably echoing a prophecy in Isaiah 35, where it talks about the spirit being poured out on us and the lame will leap yeah, like a deer. Uh, so it, there is a sign of a kind of a preview of an ultimate healing, since Peter will call the people to repentance with the promise that the day is coming when God's going to send Messiah from heaven, then times of refreshing, then times of ultimate restoration will come. And this healing of this lame man physically is a preview of this complete restoration that must await the return of Christ from heaven. But in the interim, God is calling people to repent, calling people to turn. He's, he's granting you repentance from your evil ways. Yeah. I like that emphasis that it's like, this is just a kind of a preview of the ultimate restoration because, you know, in this chapter, you don't see a lot of uh, instructions about how to do a future healing service or forming healing lines. The emphasis again is on Christ's death and resurrection. Right. Exactly. Just like actually what you find in John 5, where the lame man was healed, the focus then of that passage is not on any kind of uh, healing ministry that future apostles will do. Instead, John 5 concludes with the resurrection of the dead and then Christ being the fulfillment of the prophetic expectation. Yes, exactly. You know, I love the one of the lines here where Peter says, um, you denied the holy and righteous one, which is interesting. You know, there's only one holy and righteous one, right? <laughs> which makes sense of a lot of texts. That is a title of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53, the righteous one. Yeah. Yeah, there's only one, right? And uh, you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. You know, again, the focus is on Jesus, who is the divine Messiah. Yes. And you say, I love that connection there to Isaiah 53. And since he's described here for us as the author of life, we get this idea that, wow, this is not your ordinary rabbi. And this is in a very early speech from the, at the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. Exactly. Right. Right from the outset, you know, he's the author of life, which is, as you say, a reference to divinity. And he is a suffering servant, yeah. the righteous one who suffers, whom you killed. So there's the evidence of his humanity. So there you have, in a nutshell, the glorious mystery of the incarnation mm-hmm. right here at the beginning of the preaching. And it'll be confirmed when Peter and John get called before the Sanhedrin in the next chapter, which is the aftermath of this, when Peter and John say there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. That is maybe not verbally, but conceptually a direct echo of the Lord's claim in Isaiah 43, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 45, 
I am God. There is no other. There is no other source for salvation. So this very clear claim that Jesus is God, the only source of salvation, there is no other. That I am he language is everywhere throughout John's gospel. Oh, yes. That I am he, there is no other savior. Yeah, that line from Acts 4.12 is a fascinating echo. You know, I think in terms of the overall flow of the servant songs, particularly what you find in Isaiah 52 and 53, as it develops, you know, it talks about preaching this word from the mountaintops, this good news. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you go into the detail of what that good news is all about. It's about the suffering servant who sprinkles the nations. He is condemned. He's cut off from the land of the living. He's mm-hmm. buried. So we definitely have a clear picture of his death. And then we have, he shall see light. That word light is actually in the Dead Sea Scroll version and the Greek Septuagint, not yes. in a lot of the English translations, but it's yeah. there in the oldest copies. Yeah. He shall see light, and then he's dividing spoils in a victory celebration. So right. what you have, really, is death, burial, and resurrection. And it's such a crucial passage through the sermons of Acts, but it's kind of alluded to everywhere because it's like so familiar to them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And Isaiah, again, right at that point where we see him dividing spoils, the Lord announces that this servant, this righteous one, justifies many. So it makes the, many to be accounted righteous, accounted righteous, exactly yeah. reckoned righteous through his suffering, as well as obviously through his active obedience. But the focus is on the suffering here. Yeah. In chapter eight, we're told the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. What do you think is instructive about that passage? Well, I think what's fascinating there is, first of all, of course, in God's extraordinary providence, wonderful providence, the eunuch just happens to be reading aloud as he's returning from the temple back to Uh, his home country, not probably quite as far south as we think of as the nation of Ethiopia, but Kush in southern Sudan. He's reading aloud, wonder of wonders, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, beginning of Isaiah 53, and he doesn't understand it. He needs someone to guide him. He needs someone to kind of take him by the hand and lead him. What is this about? Is it about the prophet Isaiah? Is it about someone else? And as naturally as can be, Luke records, Philip began from that text and told him the good news about Jesus. So a fairly long Old Testament quotation before Philip even opens his mouth, but it's all about Jesus. So uh, there's a common theme here in what we're seeing, the subject of these messages. (laughs) Yeah, right. If you ask any of the apostles, or if you ask Philip, who was a colleague of Stephen and caring for the widows, but also full of the spirit, full of, uh, of wisdom, what's the Old Testament about, they will say Jesus, right? You know, that's actually a good question, I think, for our listeners to think about. If you go to church and Sunday after Sunday, the focus of the sermon is you, then that church doesn't appear to be in line with the substance of what we're seeing here in the book of Acts. Again and again, whenever you hear the apostles preaching, the focus is on Christ as proclaimed from all the scriptures. Exactly. So those practical sections, say, of the last three chapters of Ephesians are completely grounded in the first three chapters, which are all about the gospel. Yeah. And therefore our identity. Yeah. You know, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Ephesians 4.1 is really Paul is drawing on all that he said in chapters 1, 2, and 3 about God's great work in Christ. So Philip tells him the good news of Jesus. And the Ethiopian eunuch's response, obviously the good news includes Those who trust in him have a a new identity, and that's to be expressed in being baptized into his name. So having been baptized, now a new creature in Christ, he's going to, I presume, continue to read that very expensive scroll that he acquired in Jerusalem. And so he's going to read through 54 and 55 
And in 56, he's going to get to some amazing promises where God says, I will include foreigners and eunuchs yeah. who in ancient Israel were excluded from wor- the worshiping community. Eunuchs were excluded mm-hmm. by the law in Deuteronomy. I will include them in my house of prayer. Yeah, that's great. In fact, doesn't it say that some of whom I will even raise up for priests? Yes, yes. Which right. would have been an unheard of thing in ancient Absolute Judea, ancient reversal. Absolute yeah. reversal. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, in chapter nine, we read of Paul's famous conversion on the road to Damascus. And during that time, Jesus appeared to him saying, I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the Gentiles, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's an interesting way to describe Paul's commission. He had been commissioned by the chief priests to go and persecute the Christians, but now he's being recommissioned by Jesus himself. And what's he to do? Is he, you know, helping people with their self-esteem? Is he going to have a healing ministry? No, he's there to proclaim to the Gentiles the forgiveness of sins and the fact that they are sanctified by Christ. Yes, exactly. He's going to the core of all of our other problems, which is that every one of us, apart from the intervening grace of God, are alienated from God, guilty for our sins, subject to judgment. So what we need, first and foremost, is forgiveness of sins and the transformation of our hearts then. And of course, Paul goes on to say, a place among those who are sanctified in me need to be set apart for him. This is what we need more than anything else. And it is interesting that Christ says to Paul at this point, I'm going to send you as a witness to the Gentiles. Yeah. When you think about Paul's credentials in Judaism, like what he lays out in Philippians 3, you would not think he would be one that would voluntarily go to unwashed, unclean Gentiles. But he's the perfect witness to the Gentiles. Because when Gentiles come to faith in Jesus, and then others come and say, now you need to keep Torah in every way, shape, and form, Paul can say, no, no, I've been there, I've done that, it doesn't go anywhere. And Paul can say, in my effort to establish my own righteousness, I became an enemy of Messiah, and God showed mercy to me. And if Mm. he can show mercy to me, he can show mercy to you. Right. No matter what your sins have been, no matter what your idolatries and immoralities have been, come, come. So he's the perfect witness to the Gentiles. Yeah, if God can forgive the chief of sinners, he can yes. also uh, forgive lesser sinners as well. Yeah, yeah. And in Acts chapter 13, we find Paul preaching his first sermon in the city of Antioch. So if you were to summarize, what would you say is the basic thrust of the message we find there? Well, it's interesting. Paul is invited to give a word of exhortation in the synagogue service by the leaders of the synagogue. The law and the prophets have been read. And so he apparently builds on that by giving a kind of a running history of Israel. He focuses very briefly on the Exodus, uh, but he really wants to take us very quickly to the kingship, Saul briefly, but mainly David. And then from David, Suddenly, he brings us into the fulfillment. He's Jesus. He's the offspring of David. He's the Redeemer promised in this Old Testament scripture that he's been surveying. Very similar to what Peter did on the day of Pentecost when we were talking about Acts 2. Mm -hmm. Like Peter did there, Jesus was rejected by the people and put to death. 
And there's a reference to the tree here, when they took him down from the tree, having fulfilled what God had prophesied in the Old Testament. Uh, he was buried, and then he was raised the third day, and now we come into biblical texts that Paul will quote. Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Which came up in, in Acts 2 with Peter's sermon. Exactly. And Peter took time to say, and you know, brothers, we know that's not about David, because we have his tomb to this day. Paul makes kind of the same point. David was buried. He saw corruption. It's almost like he's been hanging out in the same circles. <laughs> you think? You th maybe so. Maybe so. And that, of course, then leads to the application, right? That we are called now to repentance. We're called to faith. And uh, what I love in this sermon is this uh, wonderful promise here in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is justified. Now, I'm looking at the ESV, but I'm also looking across the page at my Greek New Testament. Is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law. That word justify is the word that we are so familiar with from Paul's epistles to Galatians and to Romans. So here's the gospel. Forgiveness, uh, but not only the forgiveness of our sins, but also that positive side of justification declared right in God's sight through the work of Christ. So then the call is a, an implied call to faith, obviously, anyone who believes, and a warning. Don't harden your heart. Yeah. Uh, you know, a warning that's drawn out of, uh, out of Isaiah. So I love what he says in verse 32 in that sermon that we find in Acts 13. He says, and we bring you the good news, that is the gospel, which God had promised to the fathers. I mean, can you find a clearer text showing that the gospel was proclaimed ahead of time throughout the Old Testament? This gospel was proclaimed to the fathers. This is the same promise. Exactly. Exactly. You could probably find texts that are at least as clear because right. there's so many yeah. of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they're not in competition with each other. Right. They're singing the same tune. The gospel of Jesus, forgiveness to all who believe. And of course, that's the nice follow-up here in 13. The next Sabbath, when some say, we don't want you in the synagogue anymore, and Paul and Barnabas say, we had to preach the gospel to you first. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, they're reading in advance what Paul will write to the Romans. The gospel is the power <laughs> of God for salvation to right. the Jew first and also to the right. Greek, also to the Gentile. So that's the whole point that's being made, is that Scripture all the way through in the Old Testament, which is what Scripture means when New Testament writers and speakers talk about it, is testifying to Christ. And so if we're going to understand all that is revealed about Christ, we have to understand how this is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies and promises, right? Exactly. Exactly right. And that's what the lifetime of discipleship is all about. Right. Is just becoming more and more informed about our inheritance. What were the promises and how have they been fulfilled? Right. And I think that's one of the Holy Spirit's purposes for the sermons in the book of Acts, right? It's to hmm. teach us how to read the Old Testament scriptures, the way Jesus taught his apostles. We think of Luke 24, his resurrection appearances, and then that's kind of continued over into Acts 1. Teach us how to read the scriptures the way Jesus taught his apostles, the way the apostles then began to preach it. And of course, the epistles do the same thing. Hebrews does the same thing. Teach me how to read the Bible. 
All right, so now, as a result of all that we found here in Acts chapter 13, in verse 49, we read, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. You know, this is a major theme in the book of Acts, isn't it? The word of the Lord spread. Yes. How does that match with even the thesis statement that we find at the beginning of the book of Acts? Well, as Jesus talks about the agenda of there being witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. So it's their witness bearing that is advancing. And then we've seen this theme, uh, the summary statements about the word of God growing or spreading. Mm-hmm. Increasing. In a, in a bunch of places in Acts 6 and Acts 12, and uh, we'll see it again in Acts 19. So in Acts, you want to talk about church growth, what you're talking about is word growth. The word yeah. of God is having this effect. And that's why Luke has so much of this book devoted to preaching, to sermon materials. My count is around 30% of the total words in Acts are sermons, which is pretty close to a third. That's a lot for a history book. Mm -hmm. But he wants to make that point in that way, too. The word is what drives the growth of the church and the planting of new congregations to the ends of the earth. So now in uh, the first few verses of Acts chapter 17, we find Paul at a synagogue in Thessalonica, reasoning from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's basically preaching the same sermon, isn't he? He basically is. And what's wonderful about that little summary is that it pretty much sounds like what Jesus said to disciples on the road to Emmaus. Yeah, right. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? Well, His entering glory is his resurrection, but it's also his ascension and his being seated at the right hand of God. But it's basically the same thing. But notice Paul, first of all, in a sense, takes them to the scriptures and says, you need a fuller, better, more accurate, more biblical understanding of what Messiah's career was supposed to be. It was suffering and then glory. It was dying for his people and then being raised from the dead. Oh, and... That's been fulfilled. Jesus is this Messiah. Right. So it's, again, grounded in the Old Testament scriptures. So, again, this is foundational material for what Christianity is. And we should pay close attention to all the sermons, especially where they repeat. That's right. What are the key ideas, the key texts, the key topics, as the groundwork is being laid for the earliest Christian proclamation? Exactly. Exactly. Right. And it's the uh, groundwork for the earliest Christian proclamation, including, as we see in the epistles, the proclamation to people who have been brought to faith and need to be taught what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus. It's always the implications of Christ's death and resurrection for us. Again, as you said at the beginning, the foundation has to be laid there, and then the Christian life flows from that by the work of the Spirit. Now, in verse 16 of Acts 17, Paul is in Athens, and Luke records that he reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue there, and also preached Jesus in the marketplace. And as a result of this, he's invited to speak at the Areopagus. So uh, what sort of message does he proclaim to the Athenians in that setting? Right. Well, the Areopagus uh, in ancient Athens was sort of the um, accrediting body for visiting teachers, Uh, And he's preaching in their mind foreign deities, Jesus, who obviously has a Hebrew name, and Anastasis, which is the Greek word for resurrection. He's preaching that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but they seem to hear him saying, oh, Anastasis, that will obviously be a female goddess. Hmm. 
They're not listening carefully. But it's interesting that even here, they get the point that he's focusing on the resurrection, even in this very pagan setting. Right. And of course, he will come back to that in this brief presentation of why they should know how they can come to know the God that they admit they don't know. Yeah, it's interesting that he's so aware of his audience. You know, yeah. He doesn't do what he does with the Jews in the very synagogues. He's interacting with the shrine of the unknown God. Yeah, the writings on the statues. He's interacting with the uh, with their poetry. Right. But not with the Hebrew text. Right. Right. Now, his content is, of course, fully biblical. Right. Right. Because even when he quotes the Stoic poets, uh, Aratus, Cleanthes, probably a couple of them that he's quoting, we are all his offspring. But he is appealing to even the fragments of general revelation mediated through God's common grace insights into these philosophers and poets. But then he's going to bring them to the reality, the day of religious pluralism, when God let all the nations go their own way, that's over. Religious pluralism is not a good thing. Paul says now is the time when God has put on notice the whole human race, that he's appointed a day of judgment and he's appointed a judge and he's given notice of that by raising him from the dead. It's intriguing. Luke only gives us samples of these sermons. My hunch is that there was more. Exactly. Uh, and we know where he would go from other sermons. Yeah. That he would go to Jesus, you know, and talk about his resurrection. But yeah, he starts with general revelation. He starts with some common grace insights that even the pagans don't get 100% right, but they kind of grasp something there. The hint that they know there is a God they do not know, and Paul says, I'm going to tell you about him. Right. The true and living God that lies behind all the gods of human imagination, uh, and he's the one who is bringing the world to judgment and is appointed a judge now. And he says, uh, and he's the one whom God has appointed, and he has given proof to all by raising him from the dead. This has been proven. This has been demonstrated in our day, and... Some people say, hmm, let's hear you again on this. This is interesting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Again, that piques their curiosity. Yeah. Uh, and some come to faith as well. Right. Uh, he even named some names there. But yeah, the point is, this is public and this is grounded in concrete history. What I'm telling you is not one of the mythical stories that human imagination came up with. Right. Uh, this has been demonstrated by the resurrection of Christ, testified to by so, so many witnesses who saw him alive after his death. In Acts chapter 19, Paul is in the city of Ephesus, and Luke tells us in verse 8 that he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. When it says there that he spoke about the kingdom of God, is he changing subjects or is that still the same message? <laughs> It is exactly the same message. And Luke has made this point so clearly already that this is about Jesus, right? He starts the book of Acts by saying that Jesus for 40 days taught about the kingdom of God to his apostles. And we think, oh, that's interesting. I wonder how he taught about the kingdom of God. Well, you flip back to the last chapter of volume one, Luke 24, and Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God by teaching them that it was necessary from the scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer and so enter into his glory, that he would die, and the third day he would be raised from the dead, that the gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached among all the nations by the, his witnesses. And, of course, we'll see this at the other end of Acts as well, because the very last thing we, we're going to hear is that Paul, even though he's in prison, 
is free to talk about the kingdom of God and the things concerning Jesus. It's always about Jesus, and it's about this surprising way that he has inaugurated the kingdom of God through his suffering, resurrection, and, uh, and glorification. Yeah, that, that eternal king promised in 2 Samuel 7, this eternal king has arrived and he is building his eternal kingdom. It's something he's building, exactly. not something we are building. Right. <laughs> we receive it. Right, we receive it. In chapter 21 and following, Paul gives a number of speeches after he's arrested in Jerusalem. But since we're running out of time, we'll just focus on his famous speech in Acts 26 before Festus and Agrippa. In verse 13 of that passage, he says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen on the, on the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the language of the Hebrews, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Clear introduction here to the purpose statement. Yes, absolutely. For which Jesus has been called. For this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and to share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's a pretty clear mission statement. Definitely. Oh, yeah. He's not given blueprints on how to create the perfect society. He's not told to hold political rallies or to encourage people to participate in the redemption of the world through social activism. He's just called to proclaim light in the midst of darkness to the end that his hearers may receive forgiveness and sanctification, both of which are gifts of God's grace. Definitely, definitely. Paul and Barnabas had received, back in Acts 13, they, they quote from Isaiah 49, they'd received a commission from God to be a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So there is a kind of a redemption of the earth entailed in their calling. This is a one of the Lord's calling to the servants. So Jesus is the unique servant, mm -hmm. but they now, transformed by him, are also servants. So uh, there is a true sense in which calling people to repentance and faith in Christ, forgiveness of sins, and then following him is about a kind of redemption, but it's not the kind of redemption that's so often talked about when we're concerned about issues of social justice yeah, yeah. in the very short term. It's a much bigger thing. It's not just social renovation. So with the distinction you would make there would be Jesus objectively obtains redemption, yes. But we participate in that insofar as we announce that right. ministry of reconciliation so that we are, in some sense, liberators when we're unlocking the chains through proclamation of what Christ accomplished. Right, right. Or as John Murray said in his little book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, we have a role in preaching the redemption that Christ accomplished, and therefore, in that, we have a role in the way the Holy Spirit applies the redemption that Christ right. accomplished. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And then in verse 22, uh, Paul says, To this very day I have had help from God, and I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that he, as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. We've spoken about this theme again and again and again, but this is what they are continually emphasizing. This is nothing more than what Moses and the prophets have said. <laughs> exactly. And we probably an echo here of that Isaiah 49 passage, light mm -hmm. 
to our people and to the Gentiles. Because in that context, Paul had said, it's too small for my servant only to restore the lost tribes of Israel. I will make you a light to the Gentiles. So it really is much bigger than what maybe the apostles had in mind back in Acts 1 when they said, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. No, no, his, he's got a much bigger kingdom agenda. Yeah, yeah he, he mentions in this context, Moses and the prophets. We've talked about a lot of the words from the uh, promises of the prophets, but what passages from Moses do you think he has in mind related to the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus? Well, you ask hard questions. <laughs> I'm, I'll tell you my hunch. I think that he may even be thinking all the way back to Genesis 3.15, hmm. which is in the books of Moses, right? Yeah. When God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, your seed, and her offspring, her seed, mm -hmm. and he will crush your head and you will crush his heel. There is suffering. It's just the beginning. It's just the hint. But there's the suffering of the woman's offspring that will bring the defeat of Satan. What else in Moses would we think? Maybe the offering of Isaac by Abraham? Yeah. On this mountain, it shall be provided. Looking future, It shall looking be provided forward, yeah. when God provides a ram in the place of the promised son. You know, we know that Paul will use that terminology in Romans 8 to talk about God not withholding his own son, but giving him up for us all. So Paul may be thinking of that whole event as a preview of Christ's sacrificial suffering. And of course, that then becomes at least one of the templates that helps us to understand all that's going on in the books of Moses about the sacrificial system associated with the sanctuary, the tabernacle, and the temple. Why all these blameless, blemishless mm -hmm. animals right. dying in the place of guilty Israelites uh, so that they may be forgiven uh, of the daily and the weekly sins, and then on the Day of Atonement, obviously, prayer for the whole people of God. So I think that probably is in view when he reminds this Agrippa was a king who was, as Paul says, you're pretty knowledgeable about scriptures, yeah. right? And and this hasn't been done in a, in a corner. You know the events. Put the two together, O king. And so he's, you know, Moses, there are these hints of the suffering of an innocent to release from penalty those who are, are guilty and, and the promises there. Obviously, there are other promises in Moses about the prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18. Mm -hmm. But if we want to ask this question, the suffering of Christ and his resurrection, I think that would be some passages from Moses that Paul could well uh, look to. Folks, you've been hearing from my former seminary professor, Dr. Dennis Johnson, who is Professor Emeritus at Westminster Seminary, California, and the author of Let's Study Acts, The Message of Acts and the History of Redemption, and many other helpful books such as Him We Proclaim and Journeys with Jesus. If you'd like more information about the things we discussed on this episode, as always, be sure to check out the show notes where you'll find various articles, book recommendations, as well as other relevant material. You can also find out how to support this podcast by making a one-time gift or by becoming a paid subscriber through Substack. The Humble Skeptic Podcast is listener supported and I really do need your help. If you're benefiting from these episodes, please share them with friends and family and consider supporting this work financially. Also, please consider taking the time to write a review, preferably via the Apple Podcast app, since the more positive reviews we get, the more exposure we get. 
In fact, if you take the time to write a review this week, I'll consider reading it at the end of the next episode. Thanks so much for joining me, and I look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Oh,